Hello. Where do you keep the Black Arts books? Something terrible has happened, I know, but you don't have to do... I need power. Not with those books. I can't let you. Willow, stop. W-A-L-T. It's the Midnight Disease. Sam Dingman coming to you on the Electro Voice RE20 via the Great River ME1NV. Analog Tones. On a Thursday afternoon, my friends, welcome to the show. Folks, I told you a while back about a piece I did for the Sports Explains the World podcast that was about the magic of baseball on the radio. The goal with that piece was to see if I could figure out the secret sauce that makes baseball on the radio and radio in general so great. And the answer that I came to in my reporting was a phrase attributed to Hall of Fame broadcaster John Miller, good company. He sees it as the broadcaster's version of the Hippocratic Oath. First, be good company. And it's a pretty phrase and a nice idea, But one of the big discoveries for me in doing that story was the practical effect of being good company on the radio. The revelation happened during my interview with John O'Dell, the curator of the historical research at the Baseball Hall of Fame. Reflecting on the role of the broadcaster in narrating the dramatic twists that can happen at any moment during a baseball game, John said, quote, It is chaos until it is described. I've been ruminating on this idea a lot during my edit of today's episode of The Midnight Disease, which is a conversation with writer, illustrator, and podcaster Nicole J. Georges. Nicole is, among other things, the author of the Lambda Award-winning graphic memoir Calling Dr. Laura, which tells the story of her discovery at age 23 that the father she had always been told was dead is actually alive. Nicole later expanded on that story in a documentary podcast called Relative Fiction, which, as the former host of a podcast called Family Ghosts, I listened to with great interest. Relative Fiction is a playful and probing investigation into the truth behind a closely guarded family secret. And having spent five years doing similar work, I was so grateful to talk to someone else who has spent a lot of time trying to navigate that often treacherous, creative terrain. Nicole, it turns out, has been doing this very delicate form of storytelling since she was a teenager. And our conversation reminded me why this work matters, even when it feels scary or even dangerous. Ever since I was a kid, I've been keeping a visual diary, keeping Mm. a diary. It's a lot of mark making to uh, maybe say, oh, I do exist. Or Mm. "This this is the thing that's happening around me, and I just need to write it down so that I can confirm that it actually happened. Because the... 
everything around me is not necessarily verifying any of those things. Like as a kid, it was yeah. like not the things around me were not verifying that I actually like existed. Yeah. And then the history changed. And so I was like, no, no, I got you. Yeah. Like I'm an, and also, but now as an adult, I feel like it's also like, well, if something bad happens, I either get to process it through my art or I get to at least have something good that came out of it, which is the art. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so pleased that you that you started here because this, this was going to be my first question for you was um, you say in relative fiction that you started keeping a diary when you were, I think, five. And well, I did not know until you just mentioned that that was a visual diary. Um, do you remember what any of the early things you wanted to make mark of, make document of were when you first began to do this? I mean, the first thing that I drew as a kid is I tried to, like, appease my mom by writing her an illustrated poem that I thought she would like. And I mm. thought she would like it if I told her her boobs were big because that's what I understood <laughs> that women liked. So I was like, Mom, your boobs are so fat. They could not kill a rat. <laughs> and I got in a lot of trouble for that. So after that, I mean, I— So wait, so the the appeasement failed, I'm, I take it? <laughs> it really failed. It really failed. I thought I was giving her, like, almost like a valentine where I was— uh-huh. And it would have— <laughs> If I wasn't so into animals and animal rights from a young age, it would have been they could kill a rat. But I just was like, well, that's not – I don't want to kill this fictional rat. But <laughs> So I was doing diaries of – I mean, I had a turtle at the time who I was trying to teach to read. And I would do like a lot of logging of how the turtle was doing. I would write about my dog, how my dog was doing, and just everything I did that day. I would draw um, – diagrams of the teachers who I really disliked. Mm -hmm. I would draw like mean spirited diagrams. What would you point out on these diagrams? Like a, like vein, bulging veins in the eyes. (laughs) (laughs) Like a, like a long crooked nose. Uh uh Those kinds Uh of things. Um, Can I go back to trying to teach the turtle to read? Tell tell me more about this. Not, not the same scientific method that I think. (laughs) I don't know if seminal turtle work was going on anywhere else in the world, but Hmm. I would put my I would never go to school because mm-hmm. I had like chronic health issues. Mm-hmm. And so I would have a lot of time at home, which is how I prefer it. And I would take my turtle out of her tank and put her in the bathtub. And then I would put like flashcards up mm-hmm. with words, like words on them or like like short words or a longer word broken up into a few. And then uh-huh. I would just try to say it for her uh-huh. while she was swimming towards it, looking at it. Uh-huh. And what kind of uh, signs of affirmation were you looking for from her <laughs> to confirm that she was clocking these words? Gosh, I really can't tell, but I know. I mean, I also did music tests to see if we liked the same music. And uh-huh. she did seem to swim more to New Kids on the Block. <laughs> she liked, She seemed more active. And so I wonder if I was also looking to see like when she looked more active. Because she was, she would look at the thing I was showing her. Like she would yeah. look at the thing. I, would, I have a tortoise now and the tortoise now, you can tell when you have an animal's attention. So I mm-hmm. had her attention, but I, I don't know how I would ever be able to confirm that she could read. Yeah. Well, I choose to believe that she could uh, and did. So, I mean, I hear in both of those things an attempt to make concrete something that you wish were true. There's this wish for people to be able to see this teacher the way that you see them. And similarly with the turtle, there's this desire to uh, 
have the turtle perhaps be able to be more of a companion than <laughs> they are capable of being uh, by the definitions of, let's call it, traditional biology. Um, I'm tempted in hearing what you've said so far to, and in knowing your work to tie that to what you mentioned earlier about things around you feeling uh, uncertain. I mean, I think a lot of cartoonists have this. Mm-hmm. There is one place in the world where you have control, and it is your very exacting comics page. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if me trying to control my pet's behavior was similar, <laughs> but like when people, and I've always been attracted to the night shift, to like an alternate version of reality where it's like, mm-hmm. like I like to go out when it's not the weekend so that I have some privacy. Mm-hmm. everywhere. And mm-hmm. I liked staying home from school. So no one was there because my mm-hmm. house was very chaotic. So then it was like, mm-hmm. yeah, I had some control over my day. Mm-hmm. I had control over what was going on. It's like living life, but living in a parallel way. Like once I worked at the Disney catalog from 11 p.m. till three in the morning, and I just <laughs> loved like getting to drive home and having nothing there. Yeah. Or mm-hmm. getting to go to work and be, and everyone, no one else was going to work. So, like, at a certain point, even, like, the Disney catalog would thin out and it would be me and, like, three other people in this huge, weird room. Yeah. Uh-huh. I was like, this uh-huh. is perfect. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing to have that experience. It's like a backstage tour of life. I used to be a cab driver and... I would start driving at 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning in New York City. And New York City, before it wakes, you know, people always say, like, the city that never sleeps, which is just not true. Like, it does go to sleep, and it's a very deep slumber because the days are so frenetic. And getting to see that, the the depth of the, of the quiet that can exist here is, like, it's very profound. Yeah. But then I almost wonder when I grew, you know, as I've been older and— writing through things and doing the podcast mm-hmm. and going to therapy. Like, I almost wonder, like, did I think that I didn't, like, deserve a normal life? Like, did I think that I didn't mm-hmm. actually deserve to work the day shift hmm. or get the same things that other people got or that they would not, mm-hmm. that we would actually get each other? hmm hmm Well, when you started drawing as a diary practice— were you reading other comics? Was it an attempt to do something in the form of this other thing that gave you comfort, or or did the impulse come from elsewhere? I always loved comics. The thing with drawing, like drawing diagrams of my least favorite teachers, mm-hmm. etc., like using my <laughs> using my um, my skills for evil, that felt more like. There's this weird compulsion where I feel like, oh, it's just going to be faster if I draw it. Oh, it's Mm -hmm. just easier if I draw it. Then I could show Mm. you everything. So the diary practice I was doing then of like drawing diagrams of stuff and my dog, et cetera, was kind of because it felt expedient. I was reading a lot of like Archie, Mad Magazine, Gary Larson, Farside. My stuff didn't look like that. And Mm -hmm. so I was like, well, I I could never be a cartoonist, but I'm just going to keep doing this thing I'm doing in my diary. And then when mm-hmm. in high school is when I found diary comics, like diary zines. Yeah. I found yeah. John Porcellino's King Cat. I found James Kachalka, Julie Ducey. I found these people that were just straight up comic diarists. And I was like, oh, oh, and it all made sense. And was that oh sense uh, like a recognition of like, oh, I'm already doing this? Yeah. Well, so, you know, you said before the thing about, like, recognition of me, like, being able to express something to other people. And until that uh-huh. point, drawings weren't something I expressed to other people. 
Like uh-huh. at a certain point, I started just doing writing and I had a zine and I would put writing in the zine and that felt like something I could share with other people. But drawings, as you probably know, as an adult, like if you sat down right now and I said, here, draw a picture. And if you weren't already used to doing that and showing it to people, you might be like, <gasps> Like I was looking at like one of your organs or something. Yes. Yeah. I would be horrified. <laughs> and that was, that was the feeling I had about other people looking at my art where I was like, no, 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 you can't look at it. Ooh. Mm-hmm. And um, like I wasn't the kid in class that everybody turned to when you said, who can draw? Who's the art kid? Mm-hmm. Like I would mm-hmm. copy other stuff and people could see the thing I copied, but they couldn't see my actual drawing. So then seeing that people could draw in a very simple style and photocopy that and show it to people, mm-hmm. I was like, I could try. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there was almost like a a permissioning that finding these other people's work gave you. Like, it's okay to show it even if it doesn't look the way it's quote-unquote supposed to look. Yeah. And mm-hmm. then even when I did my first official diary comic and I published it, because I'd already been making zines, and when I made one that was just diary comics, I put a belt around it made of butcher paper from my work, and I, like, hand-printed something on the belt so that people couldn't open it in the store they had to mm. give me their money and then leave and go home. And if they hated it, they could hate it in private <laughs> after they took the little belt off. Right, right. So they kind of had to they had to take the plunge. They had to take the um, plunge. And the permission came from them then actually liking it and me being like, oh, oh. Okay. Yeah. I, I really want to ask you a little bit because it's it's a world that I don't know very much about, about this zine world because i'm i'm ambiently aware you know as somebody who doesn't frequent comic shops but goes from time to time that to this day there are still sections in the best comic shops where they have local artists who have come and left what i assume are very limited edition copies of their personal zines that they've made and that this is a thriving community of a of a type that has existed for a long time um how did you first discover it? Well, I found it a pretty glamorous way, which was through ska message boards <laughs> <laughs> in Kansas in the 90s. I was on a ska message board, which is basically like, I don't know how to describe it to people today, but it's, you're interested in a kind of music that's kind of subculture and you find your subculture through just talking about that music on a message board. And yep. some guy had done, I thought it was called a zine. And he mm-hmm. kept talking about his zine, and I was like, what is that? Why is everybody mm-hmm. sending this guy dollar bills? And so I sent him a dollar, and he sent it to me, and it was so boring. And the clip art he used was boring, and I was like, oh, this guy's getting all these dollars for this? I could do this. <laughs> and so I started doing one, and then I I don't even know if I advertised it on the message board, but I did. I do remember vividly going to like a punk show or a ska punk show with my zines and just setting up a table in the back. But I found that I knew that that existed from going to shows and seeing other nerds sitting in uh-huh. the back with their zines uh-huh. or comics and uh-huh. being like, oh, you could just do this. So then you have a job at the show, love having a job, <laughs> and then you could just sit back there and sell your thing. And then, yeah, you go to the, then you find out about the record store and you see other mm-hmm. zines at the record store and you're like, I make a zine. And then at some point mm-hmm. somebody tells you. <laughs> the right way to say it and yeah Psst, it, nicole nicole we call them zines <laughs> i think it was like meeting somebody and being like oh my god you make a zine i love that zine and then maybe in conversation they were like yeah anyway my zine my zine my zine and i was like oh uh-huh. oh god <laughs> <laughs> never again never again <laughs> so it was like a combination of, of message boards record stores and mm-hmm. then shows and i have to imagine there must have been and i think you alluded to it 
some moment where you overcame this this moment of hesitation about like, uh-oh, what happens if I show people these things that I've been drawing? And then I imagine there came a time where you did that and you got some kind of positive response. What What did that look like? Because, you know, I'm thinking, you know, like if you put up a podcast you maybe you get an email from somebody or maybe you you know somebody leaves a comment in apple podcasts or if you make a youtube video you know you get to see like oh my god all these people watched it or something but a zine is so analog so how how does that feedback come back to you well i also would i would organize a zine conference at the mm-hmm. time as a teenager called the midwest mm-hmm. underground media symposium so then standing <laughs> behind my table there and that to this day i'm about to go to a comics conference like that's how you get that's people come up to you. That's like the time when you get to see people that have been doing this very private thing, which is reading your zine in the confines of their home. So doing conventions like that, but also people would just write you a letter. People would write letters to zines to put in the letters section and you would print their letter in there. So it was like reader mail, mailbag, and then it would be people's response to your zine. So then you knew. But when I moved to Portland and I put out, not my first, but my my, fir- my first official comic zine. Um, I don't remember. I just remember people were like, cool. <laughs> or I don't know, people, mm-hmm. I was part of something called the Independent Publishing Resource Center in Portland. Mm-hmm. Like there's a, there was a zine shop called Reading Frenzy and the IPRC was upstairs. And that was where we had like photocopiers, a comics and zine library, a workspace, letterpress. So we were all just there making our stuff. And so everyone mm-hmm. was there like with their BO, smelling your BO, <laughs> While you're like laying out your zine, you're physically laying it out with like paper uh-huh. and tape to photocopy. Uh-huh. And so, you know, it was just a think tank. It also kind of didn't completely matter. Like as long as people weren't like repulsed and throwing tomatoes at me, I was just going to keep making it. And it was a practice you already had, right? So, I mean, I will say when I was a teenager, my very, very first one in between my ska zine and Invincible Summer, which became my long running diary comic, I made one called kitten breath that was very (laughs) very diaristic confessional autobio about like sexism and sexual assault in the punk community and it included essays and it included some like very emo comics and that when i put it out my friends were like "Ooh, that was tmi like they were like my friends were a bunch of punk boys and they were the adults around me were like, this was great. So brave. And then the punk boys that I hung out with were like, whoa, <laughs> I did not like that. Mm. Interesting. What what do you think was behind that? Was it because it implicated them in untoward behavior? I mean, I literally used people's real names and said, oh, like, wow. this mm-hmm. guy did this thing. And then I told these guys and they didn't care. And it just, I really just, I was like 16 or 17. I had an ax to Mm -hmm. grind. Yeah. I I was inspired by Riot Girl zines. Mm -hmm. I was just calling people out. I was like, here's a horrible thing that happened. And people Mm -hmm. were like, why you got to talk about that? We're just trying to party. So what kept you going when you encountered that resistance? I mean, I actually lost all my friends at the same time through that zine. Like, uh-huh. they literally, like, called me on the phone, and when I was like, hello, and they're like, you're whack, you're whack, and then they're all laughing, call me whack, which is like a diss. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I was really sad, and I had, like, one friend and, one, and a boyfriend, and those were my two friends, but my whole friend group had cut me off, and 
I don't know. I just was like, well, fuck them. I am gonna... There were just other zines that were like this. There was Riot Girl zines. There were other confessional zines and comics that I saw. And I was like, those people may not live in Kansas City where I live, but I'm aligned with them. And I think what they're doing is righteous. And I want to keep doing that. I'm like extraordinarily sad and cut off from my community of friends. But like, I'm just going to do the thing. I know the thing I'm doing is right. Yeah. If I may, I, this strikes me as a, a kind of extraordinary moment because in in your journey, because I can see that derailing somebody at at, the, at a formative age and making them feel like uh, confessional narrative nonfiction, personal storytelling hurts people and I should stop doing it. But if I'm hearing you right, at this point, you had enough reps in and were aware of the the breadth of the community that you are now a part of that you were able to overcome that. Yeah. And it was all through mail order mm-hmm. and conventions. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, the thing I changed was I started changing people's names. Mm-hmm. I was like, okay, I could change people's names, I guess. Mm-hmm. And I want to make sure I'm telling stories that belong to me. Mm-hmm. So I'm not like telling someone else's story of being assaulted. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I felt I did have enough. Psychically, somehow I had enough. Mm-hmm. understanding that there were other people there to hold that experience, that it was like part of a movement of people doing this. Plenty more to come with Nicole J. Georges right here on The Midnight Disease. We'll be back after a short break. You're listening to WALT. Hey folks, a quick reminder that if you hear anything on the show that makes you want to reach out, I'd love to hear from you. The email address is midnight at walt.fm. Thank you, as always, for listening. So the other thing that I hear in this is through this practice that started off as a personal practice and then becomes something that you are making and selling to others, that you have this conviction that there is an inherent value to personal storytelling. And one of the things that is so fascinating to me about relative fiction is that both of your biological parents engaged in a certain amount of personal myth-making. They would tell these grand yarns about their own lives. And as you put it in in the podcast, to great effect, they love that when it's their version of the story and they're the hero of the story. And the second, the truth that there might be another perspective <laughs> is introduced, they they back away from the, the value of, of personal storytelling. So I'm curious... And I guess, you know, at this stage in your life, we'd we'd just be talking about your mom. How much do you think your mom's propensity to yarn weave (laughs) um, affected your desire to tell stories of your own life? Gosh, I don't know. I mean, I will say in some of my earliest zines, I included some of her yarns 
Because I was like, can you believe this crazy story? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Like about her almost drowning a kid at the pool for splashing her baby when my sister was a baby. <laughs> it's just like a, a story she tells. Just, ah, ha, ha. I grabbed his little leg and dragged him to the bottom of the pool. Like just oh like, my God. like that kind of thing. <laughs> like I felt compelled to share that. But mm-hmm. it's hard for me to say. I ended up going towards storytelling for either justice or going towards like very minute those little tiny diary moments. I don't, I almost feel like her yarn weaving left out a lot of truth that then I was looking for. You know, and she's the person who inspired me to keep a diary so that I had a reflection of the truth because everything got put through her her yarn filter. Do you think you could identify like an early moment? I, it doesn't have to be the first one, although if you remember the first one, that would be great, where you realized that your mom's version of events didn't line up with your experience of what had really happened and what it felt like to write down in your mind what the truth was? Gosh, I mean, I think there must be a million of those. The tooth Mm -hmm. one is one because as an adult, I was having horrible tooth problems Mm -hmm. where I like did any, I like worked at a nonprofit, so I didn't really have insurance and I just basically didn't eat like solid crunchy food for a year because Mm -hmm. my teeth were so jacked and I couldn't afford to fix them. And she was, she was like, God, I wonder why your teeth are so bad. And I was like, well, mom, remember when my teeth all rotted out when I was Mm -hmm. like a kid? And she's like, God, you just loved that bottle. And so to her, the story is like, can you believe this like conniving two-year-old, you know, but I think Mm -hmm. other things like my family, like I thought Carlo Rossi wine was really nice wine. Until like, because that's my mom's story. It's like really nice. And then I moved to Portland. And I was like, oh, crusty punks are drinking this. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like crusty punks are are toting around this same giant jug of yeah. wine that is in my house. Mm-hmm. Right. These things cannot be true. Like these these people who have no money cannot be drinking the finest wine. The it, finest it of wines. Yeah. Right. This is jumping back in time uh, in your story a little bit, but um, I'm I'm quite moved by. The thing you said uh, towards the beginning of our conversation about how there's a way that writing things down, drawing things that happen to you, makes it feel like, at, at least even if these are terrible things that you're writing about or, or hurtful things or traumatic things, at least they get to become this this other something. And I remember a feeling of great comfort around when I was uh, 16, 17 as well, of starting to keep, it, I wasn't drawing, but of, of starting to keep a diary where I would just write down things that, that happened during the day and think like, one day this will be something. Um, and even if it hurts really bad right now, I have captured it and that gives me some some modicum of control over it. And and the the physical sensation I remember having of that is literally that like I used to walk around with my shoulders up all the time and I remember somebody noticing at some point, like, you know, a month or two after I had started writing, that my shoulders had dropped. Mm. Um, So I'm curious if you remember, it doesn't have to be a physical marker like that, but some sense in yourself once you started making note of what was happening, of a a feeling that was associated with that. Hmm. Well, I mean, 
I had like horrible stomach problems for a long time in my life. Mm-hmm. And when I was about 16, this was a, a year or two after I started making a zine, but around that time, around the same time of publishing zines, mm-hmm. getting to share my experiences with people and having a car and going vegan, all these things happened at the same time. Mm-hmm. But my mm-hmm. stomach issues started to like lessen, like significantly lessen. Like all, like whatever weird mental, you know, and then whatever they say about your gut having a mind of its own, whatever those things happen, something released a little bit. And my mom thinks it's because she talked to a miracle priest. <laughs> I thought it was because I went vegan. I never thought it was, I mean, cause, but I did have a therapist before who was like, maybe it's because you had some control over your own life. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so I don't know mm-hmm. if zines and writing and art were part of that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But it definitely takes like a moment when you are feeling isolated and it turns it into something different. It turns it into like a little bridge where you can connect to other people. Yeah, I think you say in relative fiction, um, I actually have this written down if you don't mind, that drawing was a way to escape isolation. And I wanted to ask you more about that because my understanding from the way you talk about it, at least in the podcast, and just the way I imagine people drawing generally, is that it is an isolated activity, that it is a solitary practice. And yet it becomes this way to escape isolation. So what do you mean by that? I guess would be the question is, is it that the work eventually finds an audience who resonates with it? For me, reading other people talking about abuse or mental illness or like class stuff, etc. Like reading all that stuff in a confessional way, like where you can see someone's hand, like somebody who's using their literal handwriting on the paper. It meant so much to me. It gave my brain a shift to actually recognize the things that were happening and let me actually feel them a little bit. And so then I wanted to pass that forward with all my work. Like I wanted to make myself like excruciatingly vulnerable because that kind of vulnerability is what gave me that feeling, like the life-saving feeling. Like I still, you know, like if somebody listens to the podcast and they're like, oh, I have these family things that I didn't even think about or that I didn't know anyone that had the same experience. Like I want them to have that bridge moment that I did. But I mean, the isolation part, it's not necessarily like I toil over a book and then we all get to like party together like like yeah. a pride float or something. It's not like yeah, yeah. the community isn't like that immediate, but it is, mm-hmm. I don't know. There is some message in a bottle quality, but I I can't put my finger on when you know that somebody has it. Yeah. Well, well, what is it about, you just said this really fascinating thing that it's that it is the leaning into the vulnerability that is what feels good. Can, what is that feeling? What feels so good about writing down the vulnerable thing or drawing the vulnerable thing? It's just it's just trusting that I'm just like p- part of humanity, man. Like just, uh-huh. I don't, um, I, it feels like an act of service. It feels like I am taking my place in this world with other people. It feels, I mean, who have had similar experiences or other artists who have done a similar thing. And it does, whether I, uh, publish it or not. It feels nice to like get it out of my body where it's just festering and onto the page. So then it's like having an external hard drive sometimes. And also in Calling Dr. Laura, my book that I did about this family secret, 
it takes a long time to draw that stuff. And so it's like, not only the feeling of being super vulnerable, where you're like, ooh, oh, I never planned to say this thing about my stomach problems as a kid. This is actually still embarrassing. There's like a little bit of satisfaction being like, okay, it doesn't have to, the shame, it's not shame in my body anymore. It exists somewhere. And actually when you bring shame to the light, it ends up being okay, generally. Usually is the thing that you're like, oh, don't look at it, it's so terrible. I'm the worst person that's ever lived and here's why. Usually you do that and then people look at it and they're like, nah, you're not that gross and also me too. Yeah, yeah. So this makes me want to ask you about, there, there's a really moving part early in relative fiction where you talk about how you had this sense for yourself that the real story of your father, like it wasn't adding up, but that you felt disinclined to speak up about your suspicions because you also had a secret that you were keeping in terms of your sexuality. Mm -hmm. um, it was such a powerful moment of storytelling because on the one hand, it answers this question that has been percolating in the listener's mind, like, why didn't Nicole just ask about this if there was, you know, if there were all these very obvious questions? And then you give us that answer, so we're, and then that allows us to continue moving through your investigation without getting hung up on that detail. But also, it makes so much sense that you would feel like, if I'm going to ask for absolute honesty about this thing, then I would have to be absolutely honest. Do you remember how you ultimately resolved that tension? Mm. I had to hit a rock bottom. At the time, I had a live-in girlfriend, and then she, like, cheated on me and replaced me in our band with one of our friends and the Ugh. person she had cheated with. Like, they became a three-piece of people that all had kind oh. of betrayed me. And Gross. Like, that was, like, my chosen family at the time. And yeah. then, like, any of the people that had aided and abetted in this, I just felt very isolated. And um, mm -hmm. so I just kind of, like, was so – I felt like like Dark Willow. Do you remember? Did you watch Buffy? There's a part where yes. Will when yes. Willow has, like, the red hair, and then when her girlfriend dies, she just is like, Ugh! and, like, her <laughs> eyes turn black and her hair turns black, and she goes around just, like, skinning people. Uh -huh. I felt like that, and I just felt so, like, bereft and fucked up that I was like, I don't even care what my mom says. Like, oh, and then, oh, at the same time, my mom, it was, oh, I wasn't reaching out. My mom was reaching out to me. She was aggressively hounding me to come visit. Mm -hmm. And she was just like calling, 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 emailing, emailing, calling, calling, calling. And I couldn't avoid her. And I just was like, okay, you know what? Fine, fine. You want to come visit? Well, guess what? I just was like, had, I was like licking rock bottom. I was just like at the, the very lowest I had been up until that point. And I was like, you can just stop me further in the dirt. It does. It's actually not going to do anything to me right now because I'm so sad already. I don't know if I recommend that to people as their, like, turning point with their families. <laughs> <laughs> but it does make sense. It, do, it does make sense, this idea that you're worried that revealing this thing is going to hurt so bad, and then you reach a point where everything hurts so bad, so what's one more thing? Yeah. Was that the moment where you told her? Yeah, I sent my mom an email, and the email was like, I know you've been lying about my dad. And before you come here to visit, I want you to know that I have been lying too. And my like roommate, my cool roommate I had is actually like my partner and we were in love and now we're not. And 
Uh, and so I just wanted you to know all that so we could just, you know, maybe we can start with a fresh slate. Mm. And then she mm. didn't respond for like three days. And she was like, I was crying for three days and three nights. Oh, what I'm if sorry. I go to hell for raising two lesbians? <laughs> and then um, she's like, we are not, we will not start in a clean slate because I am the mother. And you, she just, she did some weird kind of shift. And I was like, all right, there it is. That was the maternal response that I was expecting from this. I'm sorry that that was the response that you got. I can't imagine what that felt like. It's tempting for me in hearing you say that to to make a bit of a connection between that and the moment you described earlier uh, with Kitten Breath of writing the truth, no names changed, and then getting being called whack (laughs) by (laughs) your partner at the time and your other friends. What feeling did you have when you got that email from your mom? I mean, at that point, I was sort of, I don't know if I was, I wasn't wooden to it, but I was kind of like, there's just another drop in the disappointment bucket mm-hmm. of having a mom that is mm-hmm. this person. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. she later went on to give me a one-star Amazon review for my book, Calling Dr. Laura. Yeah. And I... Like, that was just, like, another moment of that same feeling, if we're bringing it back mm-hmm. to that. And it was just, mm-hmm. like, I mean, there, there's a saying in therapy, and, you know, it's, like, don't go to the hardware store for milk. And she yeah. just is the damn hardware store. But it feels better for me to make this art and have it out there and have the truth and the shame of it being metabolized into something than to live holding this other person's secrets in hopes that she doesn't hurt me. Right. And you know this. You have this, you know, the years of training at this point to not expect them to sell milk at this hardware store. Right. Um, So, you know, we talked earlier about this idea of permissioning and finding other people's work that made you feel like you had permission to show the work that you were already making to the world. And if I'm clocking the timeline correctly, this era of the email is around the time that you start down the path that becomes calling Dr. Laura, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you you decide like, all right, well, I am going to be honest and open about who I am, and I am going to find out the real story of my father, and I'm going to put it in a book. Did you, and I don't mean this to be provocative, I, I mean this because this is a challenge that I faced a lot uh, on Family Ghosts and that I don't think people who do this kind of work talk about enough. Did you feel like you had to seek out permission from your sister or the sisters you knew about at the time? <laughs> um, or seek out permission from anybody else to say like, well, it's time for me to write the dad book and, I, and I'm going to do that. Are you guys comfortable with that? Are you guys cool with it? Or did you just let yourself begin that work? Well, for, before I started the book, I talked to a psychic to ask her if I should do it because it felt like signing a contract with the devil. Huh. Like telling my mom's secrets felt like uh-huh. I was like the biggest betrayer, traitor in the whole wide world. And so I talked to a psychic who was like, you know, if you get, you, you got to, de- it's going to take you somewhere you need to go with your family, whether it's good or bad. And this is the time to do it. You're not going to do it later. So just do it now if you're going to do it. And I was like, okay. And I talked to Alison Bechdel, who wrote Fun Home. And she was like, you're a writer and your family may not 
may not be happy with it, but you are a writer, so you have to write. And I told my sisters, I was like, I'm going to work on this book. And they were both happy for me. And they both said that they would help me as much as they could with information. There are big parts of this story of your dad that you, you you told twice, right? Like you did first in Calling Dr. Laura and then did again in Relative Fiction. I was very curious to know what it felt like for you, having gone through such a journey to get to a place where you felt like you could write about these experiences and draw these experiences. But now you were doing it, one, in sound, so there was no visual. You were presenting renderings of other people beside yourself that were their voices, not your illustration of them. And you were doing it in collaboration with a producer who, if I understood the credits correctly, helped you with with the writing. How did that feel for you as someone who was so used to doing this in a specific context? Better and worse. Because Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. getting to interview family members... We are actually making a connection. People actually felt like they were being of service to me by giving me all the information about my dad that I never knew. So we were having these really big emotional moments during these interviews because a lot of these people that I interviewed on the podcast were new to me. And so they were giving me new information or we were connecting in a way that we hadn't connected before because we hadn't talked for like, we hadn't talked for hours staring at each other on Zoom. We just happen to have Claudia there, my producer, Claudia Mesa, um, there too. But also it was weird because having Claudia there was like having like a, I don't want to say a sane person, but I'll say it, but a person that was <laughs> not part of the family, the family lore, like hadn't drank the Kool-Aid of any of these families. And so Claudia could be like, wait, what did you, and Claudia's a, a journalist and I'm not a journalist. I'm like part of the family. And so Claudia's like, wait, what did you guys just say? Like, who's that? Per-? I was like, you know, and then both of us are like, oh, this is the thing we're going to dance around or not talk about. And then Claudia is like interjecting, being like, wait a minute, what about this thing? Mm-hmm. So I, I know it created more intimacy for people than my books. And it created more intimacy with the family members for me. But it, you know, it was hard. It was also during pandemic that we were like recording a lot of this audio. So it was like a really intense time to be like plumbing the depths of childhood trauma and family history. Yeah. I remember feeling in my own experiences with doing personal storytelling about my family as part of a podcast that um, wasn't just, wasn't purely a personal project, but was uh, a job that I had been hired to do. That one of the gifts of having a producing organization and a human producer who was helping me was that if there was a very difficult phone call I had to make or a very difficult question I had to ask, it made me feel like I cannot back down from doing this because I will be letting down this producer or Mm. this company that doesn't really care. I mean, they care about me as a person, some, obviously, but they're also like, we've hired you to make a podcast. You need to make the podcast. And in order for it to be accurate, you have to ask these questions. Um, And if it hadn't been for that forcing function, I don't think I could have done it. Um, But it also created this feeling for me where I, I felt like I constantly had to check in with myself about, like, am I asking this question for my job or for my well-being as a human who wants to understand the 
full truth of this story that affects me. And I would get stuck sometimes. I didn't stop in those moments to think about the other person's feelings about being asked the question, which I think is what journalists, I think that's how they sleep at night, is they're like, well, journalism is about um, producing truthful accounts, and to ask produce truthful accounts, you have to ask certain questions, and that resolves the emotional dilemma. <laughs> but when it's your own family, it, it gets gooier than that. So what what was your experience of that? Well... Like, I ha- I did have to, like, pull them back from them being OPB, so Claudia and our um, mm-hmm, executive mm-hmm. producer, Sage. I had to pull us back from, like, hounding my mom or sister too hard because my mom was like, no. And then Claudia was like, well, maybe if I just – and I was like, okay – and then my, I have my other sister who was in my book, but she didn't want to talk on the podcast. I just was like, Claudia was like trying to think of more ways to approach her after she said no. And I was like, you just got to let this one lie. Like, yeah. I don't want to mm-hmm. make my sister mad at me mm-hmm. from trying so hard to get her to like spill the dirt on a podcast mm-hmm. that we, I don't want to affect our relationship. Um, yeah. We def- you have to keep living and being part of the family after the podcast. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I do feel like us talking about my dad's maybe lies that he told his final mm-hmm. family, I do think that that caused some kind of a weird wedge. Mm-hmm. I don't know. You know, like like saying, like, probably if I was just going for a visit, I wouldn't be like, what about those kids he never told anyone about? Like, I wouldn't, s- mm-hmm. I don't know yeah. if I would like, go as far down that road as we did Mm -hmm. if it wasn't for the podcast. But at the end of the day, those people that were like the secret people that had been written out of history were like, thank you for telling our story. Mm -hmm. Thank you for making this podcast. We thought the whole family forgot about us. They said that to you? Yeah. I'm so happy to hear that. I'm so happy for you, you, (laughs) but but also just I'm so glad to know that 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 was an outcome. I mean, so, also, I mean, this was all happening during, like, the rise of QAnon and just yeah. a lot of stuff. So there's different relatives that were on the podcast that I just, at a certain point, our political leanings were so different that I was like, I don't know if it's, like, that that made us less close afterwards mm-hmm. or if mm-hmm. it was mm-hmm. um, if me asking too many questions put a wedge there. But then other people were like, thank you. Or other people were like, yeah, these people were complicated. Yeah. Well, and I'm reminded of, I guess the other thing that that really resonated with me and that I I wanted to honestly thank you for (laughs) is, you know, I I felt oftentimes on my my show, Family Ghosts, like I would get this question from some people that I know you, you know, you talk about this in the podcast that you got too, which is like, why are you doing this? Like, why do you feel this need (laughs) to do this? And... I don't know if I've ever had a good answer to that, Nicole, I'll be honest. But what I appreciated about your show is that it wasn't about the gritty details of, well, who was my father really? And what is this fucked up stuff he did? It was about the stakes of a lie and the corrosiveness, intended or otherwise, that that lie can have over generations until somebody like yourself comes along, names the lie, and 
invite people to make account of why the lie happened, doesn't even condemn them for telling it. So on one level, listening to your show and reading your work, I was like, oh, Nicole is why. <laughs> Nicole is the answer to the question. But the other thing is, and, and as just maybe as a last question for you today, I, I would really love to know how this continues to resonate with you. In the last episode, you talked to your friend who is a, a mental health professional who says that for you as a kid who was raised in an environment of untruth, writing down your own truth and pursuing definitive truth as an artist is a life-saving, sense-making endeavor. And I had just never thought about that before. Like, that is the real the real big answer, I think, to why memoirists do what they do. Because at a certain point, at a formative point, somebody says to them, it's not what you think it is. And then you come to this realization that, oh, it, it's what I thought it was. And you have to somehow make that madness make sense. So that was a huge revolution, a revelation for me to, to hear. And I wonder what it was like for you to hear that when she said it to you. I mean, it it just felt very true. I have like a meditation teacher and she has mm -hmm. us like go through this process of basically companioning yourself through painful things that happened in the past. Mm -hmm. And at some point I was like, but there was a lot of things. Are you saying I have to go back and companion myself mm -hmm. through all, every time I felt mm -hmm. hurt and alone? And she was like, every time, every time. And I just feel like, wow. These layer, like these layers of things are things that are not mine. Like these are not my secrets to hold or be hurt by. These are other people's secrets. Mm -hmm. Other people's obfuscation. And I have so many other painful things to deal with and now go back in time and companion myself through that like if I can just like slough off some of these other things that don't belong to me, I feel better for it. Thank you, Nicole, for your work. I'm so grateful to you for, for sharing your story on the show today. Thank you so much. It's so lovely to hear all this, and I'm, I'm so happy to be here talking with you. The Midnight Disease is hosted, produced, mixed, and edited by me, Sam Dingman. My thanks to Nicole J. Georges for joining me on the show today. Find her comics, podcasts, and illustrations at NicoleJGeorges.com. Don't forget to leave us a review in Apple Podcasts or Spotify if you like what you hear. I'm Sam Dingman, and I'll be back next week with another great conversation. Until then, thank you for letting your madness ride with mine. Keep driving, Midnight Cruisers.
You're listening to WALT. Homegrown. Homemade radio.